You are listening to City Church Manchester. We are a church that invites everyone to enjoy Christ for the glory of God. If we can serve you in any way, then visit our website at citychurchmanchester.org to find out more. Our reading for the day. Um, It's found in Exodus 21, um, verses 1 to 6. These are the laws you are to set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years. But in the seventh year, he shall go free, without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is free to go alone. But if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman of her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and the children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or to the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. This is God's word. Thanks, Cammy, and good afternoon, everyone. Uh, Welcome to City Church, and particularly warm welcome to you if you are new Uh, or this is uh, your very first time, Uh, you're joining us at the very beginning of um, our kind of new series on the book of Exodus. We've kind of done uh, chapters 1 through to 20, and so we're picking up on a second go of the book of Exodus, looking at uh, chapter 21 uh, onwards. Why don't I pray before we dive into uh, what is a very, very strange passage? Heavenly Father, we do thank you so much that you, you are a God who speaks to us as your word is opened. And we come before you now with every confidence and every anticipation that your spirit will reveal to us your truth. May you speak to every single one of us here, knowing the details of our circumstance, the life that we have lived and our week ahead. We pray that as we unpack these words, none of us, would leave this place unchanged. Amen. So we're back in the book of Exodus. And for those of you who were with us last week, I gave you a little bit of a a summary of the book of Exodus, a bit like a kind of teaser campaign, a little bit of a trailer to remind you. But effectively, for those of you who have no idea about the book of Exodus, uh, it begins in Exodus chapter 1, where the Israelites are slaves in Egypt. They've been slaves for about 400 years. And then God rises up a leader called Moses who challenges Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. Uh, Pharaoh says no. There's a whole bunch of plagues and eventually Pharaoh agrees and Moses leads the Israelites out of Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea that many of you probably be familiar with, and then out into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. So here we are in the wilderness. The chapter we're starting with, chapter 21, we are in the wilderness. We've escaped from Egypt. We're heading to the promised land, but we're in the wilderness. And God, in chapters 21 to 24, gives the Israelites some instructions on how to be a new community. 
And what we have in chapters 21 to 24 are a selection, an excerpt of different instructions that God had given the Israelites. uh, And Moses, who's put this book of the Bible together, has interwoven a selection of those instructions. And these instructions over these chapters, and you'll be relieved we're not doing kind of all uh, all three chapters over our time together. But God has given these instructions in order for the Israelites to become a community who will showcase God's goodness, his wonder, his kindness, his love, his compassion to the whole of the world. And trust me, these chapters are anything but dull. You see, the whole thing kicks off with these six verses that Cami has just read to us. They're going to set the tone of all of the chapters to come, and they're going to help us interpret all of the other instructions. But I wanted to focus on just these six verses because they kind of kick it all off. And the way that I want to do this is over our time together... We're going to have one strange story in these six verses that I'm going to unpack for you, but I'm going to give you three considerations, three moments. I'm just going to pause the story, I'm going to step out of it, and then I'm going to explain a little bit. So that's what's going to be happening. We're going to travel fast, so seatbelts on, okay? Let's go. Well, we begin our strange story, particularly in verse 2. Look with me at verse 2 in your Bibles. God declares that at the end of the six years, a slave can go free. At the end of six years, a slave can go free. Now, in the ancient Near East, slavery was as commonplace in the ancient economy as a meal deal is for lunchtime in Manchester. It was just something that happened in all of the different communities and economies at the time. And so what we see here in verse 2 is God seems to be creating what we might describe as a back door, a back door out of slavery. And when we look at that, it must be for us as 21st century readers, a massive fist pump, because we're thinking to ourselves, yes, This community that God is forming in the wilderness that he's rescued from slavery in Egypt, they are about to be a community that are going to be really a light to the nations. They're going to live differently to the nations. It's going to be a community of goodness and justice and blessing to the world. But let me pause there. Let me pause our story there for our our very first consideration before we go any further. Let me ask this question. Surely if God was inventing a brand new community, why didn't he just ban slavery from the beginning? Isn't that interesting questions? Why build in a back door to slavery rather than just abolish it altogether? Well, think about it like this. When Jesus is asked in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, okay, about 1,300 years after our passage. When Jesus is asked in Matthew 19, verse 8, about divorce, he's challenged on the subject of divorce, Jesus says that the, the community that Moses led, so the Israelite community that we're reading about in Exodus, 
it describes how they had um, a function of writing certificates of divorce. They wrote a certificate of divorce for this, and they wrote a certificate of divorce for that, and if you needed a divorce for something over here, you could have one, and if you needed a certificate of divorce for something over here, you could have one there. But Jesus says, Moses gave permission for the Israelites to write these certificates, not because God, in all of his might and wisdom, has a very low view of marriage, but Jesus said that they had these certificates of divorce because the Israelites were hard-hearted people. Meaning that the community that Moses was leading in Exodus wasn't given instructions for a perfect community. It wasn't the instructions for how to build a community that was absolutely flawless, like the one in Eden before the fall, or the one in the new creation that is to come. No, no, no. These instructions that we have in Exodus, they're like damage limitation for a community of Israelites who were already broken, who were already sinful, A community of Israelites who, if they were left to their own devices, would be as cruel as the Egyptian slave masters they'd just come from, or they would be as violent as the Canaanite communities that were around them in the wilderness. So what we'll see in chapters 21 to 24 of Exodus, you are going to see the blueprints for a new community. But it will have aspects, as you read through those chapters, that will make us feel, as 21st century readers, a little bit uncomfortable. But though these instructions themselves were written for a very specific group of people all those years ago, actually the principles behind these instructions, the principles behind these laws, actually, they sing a beautiful melody that was begun in Eden and that will reach its climax in the new creation. And that is what we have to particularly pay attention to when we apply these instructions to us today. Okay, so that's consideration one as we look at these laws. So back to our strange story in verses one to six. Look at me at verse five in your Bibles. Verse five in your Bibles. Suddenly we see in this verse something utterly confusing happens. Do do, do you feel the drama of this particular situation? We're told that a slave who has perhaps sold themselves into slavery because life has been turned upside down and in a desperate attempt not to starve to death, they have sold themselves to a master When that slave, we're told, has worked for six years, they now have the opportunity to walk away as free back into society. They're free to make their own decisions again. They're free to no longer have to obey a master as property. Yet, and here's the surprising moment, just at the moment they were allowed to walk away free, they are given the opportunity to say, well, actually, I'm going to remain bonded to my master. 
Actually, I could walk away, but I'm going to choose to stay. Isn't that remarkable? Now, this passage gives us two reasons why um, someone who's been a slave might choose to to stay. Uh, Someone might choose to make this absolutely eye-popping, remarkable decision. And the first one is that their family were still slaves. What if they were, were a slave and then they got married whilst they were a slave and they had children whilst they were slaves? Well, that might be a reason to, to choose to stay themselves. But of course, you're, you're probably sitting there thinking, well, hang on a minute. Why didn't the guy then just wait for his wife and his family to do their six years and then they would be free altogether as a family? It, it's a little bit like... Um, Someone doing a prison sentence, but after they come out of prison, then we can be the family. Or someone doing a tour of military duty, a long campaign, but when they come back then, then we can be family. Surely just a little bit more patience would mean that everything would be okay. Why give up your freedom for that? Well, the second reason that someone in our story might give up their freedom for the rest of their life, it's for the rest of their life. Well, do you see it in that, in that passage that we've had read? I love my master. I love my master. That's the second reason someone might extraordinarily choose to be a slave. In fact, it kind of makes sense of the whole motivation here. Let me... Let me put it like this, because, you know, we're 21st century people in Manchester. The idea of slavery is a strange thing. But let me put it like this. What if a slave comes to the end of their six years and they realise that nobody cares for them quite as well as their master? Or they realise that actually nobody provides for them as bountifully as their master did? Or maybe no one shows them as much dignity or humanity as the way that their master treated them. Or perhaps no one looked after their their family or invested in their marriage like their master did. Or, Or what if no one gifted them clothes or ample food, perhaps a safe place to live? No one did that for them to the same extent that their master did. What if in a world of danger and uncertainty, nobody offered them protection as a family like their master did? By a master whose resources were so large, he would never be desperate. And by a master whose character was so trustworthy, he could always be counted on. Well then, maybe then you would have someone who loved their family and their master so much that the best decision that they could make in the ancient world to see their family flourish was to choose to bond themselves to their master for the rest of their life. In fact, this very um, instruction is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verse 16. And the reason given in Deuteronomy 15 for someone doing this is stated as, I do not want to leave you because my family is well off with you. Do you see, if you trust the master, then actually what looks 
abhorrent actually suddenly possibly makes sense. Now, let's pause here for for a moment and and step out of the story and, and ask ourselves, as 21st century people living in Manchester, how do we feel about this? Well, of course, we're, we're repulsed, aren't we, by the idea of slavery, that a human could own another human. And yet, as we peer through the lens of this passage into a community 3,300 years ago, and we see someone being offered a safety that they've always longed for, a sense of belonging that they've always craved for, an environment that they always knew their family needed and a security for their future they always dreamed of. Even us, right, as 21st century Mancunians, though we dare not even utter it, deep down, Do we not kind of understand why someone 3,300 years ago might say, actually, I'll stay? Well, back to our strange story. For the strangeness continues. The master master takes the man before the judges. Now, this would have been a very public thing. It would have been probably in a kind of main communal square. Everyone would have seen. Uh, And he's taken to the judges, if he's decided to go ahead with this crazy decision, in order to make sure that it's all legal, that it's all above board. It would be like seeing your personal life broadcast on the BBC News website for everyone to see. Because it's publicly saying, I forevermore will not be my own, but I will belong to another. Imagine saying that publicly before everyone. And once that happens, look with me at verse 6. Because verse 6 tells us, it describes to us one of the weirdest acts in the whole of Exodus. Because this ritual contains three things, an ear, an awl, and a doorpost. Do you see that? Very strange, isn't it? Very strange. Well, come with me to consideration number three. Let me pause there for a moment. Let me step out of the story. Here's a point of note. Whenever you read something in the Bible, particularly you'll often find it in the Old Testament that just seems to be random or strange or very odd, you need to remember that the Bible is an ancient literature. It is designed to be read and reread and read again over and over and over for a lifetime so that you can make links from one passage to another. Because as you make links from this passage to this passage to this passage to this passage, suddenly things that were very strange begin to make sense. So let me show you how that works in this passage here. Let's get a little bit Sherlock Holmes about this, shall we? Clue number one, the ear, the ear. Now, um, there, is an, there isn't actually very much said about ears uh, in the first five books of the Bible. You might be surprised to hear that. Now, the, the, the very first uh, books of the Bible are written by Moses, and ears don't come up very much. But there is one mention of particular note in Leviticus 14, also written by Moses, where the induction of a new priest... 
a new priest is told that he had to rub oil on his big toe. That's right. This is another strange set of rituals, right? On his big toe, because that symbolized that he would walk in the way of the Lord, right? Secondly, he had to put oil on his thumb, because that would show that he was set aside to do the works of the Lord. And thirdly, and this is for us, he had to put oil on his earlobe because that would signify that he was listening only to the Lord. So in our Sherlock Holmes trail of evidence, in our strange, strange story today, we've got to bank the first clue. And the first clue is this, the ear equals who you will obey. Okay, the ear equals who you will obey. Clue number two, the all. Okay, A-W-L. Now, this is a kind of pointy tool, as you can see, to pierce or to mark leather or wood or or other materials. And for those of you who are a bit squeamish uh, like me, piercing really is a theme right throughout uh, the whole of the Bible. In Genesis 40, verse 19, Pharaoh's baker was pierced as a wooden pole was, was thrown right through the middle of him as a humiliating and gruesome punishment. Piercing right throughout the rest of Scripture commonly refers to someone being killed in a horrible and humiliating way. But Moses, remember Moses is the writer of our passage in Exodus, he actually uses this word pierce in Leviticus 24. And he uses it to describe someone in the Israelite community who says something bad about God, says something to humiliate God. Our word blasphemy that we would have translated in our own Bibles literally means in Hebrew to pierce the name of God. So an all is to pierce someone. And our clue is to pierce someone equals to hurt and humiliate someone. Now come with me to clue number three on our Sherlock Holmes trail. Clue number three is the doorpost. That's right, the game is afoot. Now this clue Many of you be thinking, oh, this is the easy one, because you're thinking, where have I heard doorpost before? Where have I heard it in something that Moses would have written? Where have I heard it in Exodus? Well, on the night that the Israelites left Egypt, you'll remember, you'll remember God sent the angel of death to kill all of the firstborns of every household unless they took the blood of a lamb and they put the blood on the doorpost. So unless you had blood dripping down your doorpost, you were in great danger if you were the firstborn. And so in our passage, when we see a ritual that requires human blood to be dripping down a doorpost, that's what you'd get if you pierced an ear, isn't it? We know a doorpost equals a life for a life exchange. So, Back to our strange story. What does this all mean? Let's piece the clues together. How can I describe it to you? Well, I want you to imagine, in our story, an Israelite slave called um, Jacob. Yeah, an Israelite slave called Jacob. 
He's done his six years, and so he decides, actually, rather than go free, he wants to be bonded as a slave for his master for the rest of his life. And as Jacob goes before the judges of his community, and everyone's watching like they are now, and there's sniggers and laughter, perhaps heckling from the balcony. There it is. Well, Jacob would have to remind himself that his true identity as an Israelite was not his freedom. It was not his status within society. His true identity as as an Israelite was he was loved by God as one of God's special people. That's who he really was. And as as Jacob's head is placed against the wood of the doorframe, and his earlobe is white hot in pain as the metal point of the awl slices through the soft flesh and pierces through it and act at the very front of a house or a tent or a dwelling with all of the neighbours watching absolutely dumbfounded why anyone would want to do this or why anyone who would agree to be humiliated like this. Well, Jacob... Jacob would have to remind himself that from now on, his attention would not be focused on the crowd. Not focused on the heckling from the balcony. His focus would only be listening to the voice and instructions from now on from his master because he knew that his master was trusted and was good and would have the best intentions for him and his family. And think about it like this, as his master, as his master hears Jacob's shriek of pain as the awl goes right through his ear, piercing it, pinning him to the doorpost. And as his master watches the blood gush from his ear down the wood, Well, his master would know that this man was giving up his freedom. That this man, Jacob, was dying to himself, exchanging his life to devote himself entirely to his service. Not because he had to, but because he chose to. And I wonder, I do wonder for those who sniggered, for those who laughed, for those who mocked, for those who said, who would ever do such a thing? I, I kind of wonder whether they thought to themselves as they watched that, do you know, I kind of wish I loved and trusted someone so much that I was willing to do that for them. Or I wish that I was loved. I wish that I was trusted so much that someone would be willing to do that for me. This is an obscure passage, isn't it? Exodus 21, verses 1 to 6. It's the introduction to all of the other instructions in the book of Exodus about how people should live in a community with each other. And it begins with this very beautiful and very rare ritual that sets the tone and template for every other instruction that you will read. But what does it mean for us? That's the big question, isn't it? What does it mean for us? Well, 
Let, let me speak to those of you who are sympathetic to the gospel. You, you know, you've come to City Church, you're not a member here. You wouldn't even describe yourself as a Christian, but you are sympathetic to the gospel. But the thing that holds you back is the obedience thing to God, because so many of the things that Christians seem to live by just don't seem to make sense in the 21st century. And that puts you off. Well, if that's you, let me say two things. Firstly, pretty much all of the laws that exist today that protect the values that you enjoy, whether it's justice for the vulnerable, compensation for victims, fairness in business, restitution when trust is broken, they all find their root and they all ultimately flow out of Exodus 21 to 24. And without them, our civilization would be built on the foundations of survival of the cruelest. So be thankful. Number two, all of the laws and instructions that you will find weird in Exodus, the ones you'll find difficult or even downright offensive, even in the Bible, they all flow out. They all flow out of God's heart to create a community built on love, trust, and self-sacrifice. Now, this Israelite community is not, hear me, it is not the ultimate expression of love, trust, and self-sacrifice. We don't get that until we get to the new creation as described in Revelation 21. But this is the equivalent of like a Duplo Lego set version of that community. It gives you a sense of the masterpiece that is to come, but only in the very basic building block. And that doesn't mean that when we read some difficult things in the Bible, we shouldn't feel uncomfortable. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask questions about it. But it does mean that verses 1 to 6 give us the blueprint of actually where these things, written for a community 3,300 years ago, where it's all ultimately heading. But finally, let me talk to those of you who have put your faith in Jesus. Those of you here who think actually it's very easy uh, to be a Christian, surely God just wants me to tick the box that I want to be forgiven for the rest of my life and it's job done, I'm a Christian. That's really it. That's all I'm signing up for. Well, this passage teaches us that such an attitude where it's just what I can get from God, well, that is a shallow husk of a faith. It's like going to the turquoise blue ocean of a Caribbean island and only paddling in a puddle because you think actually wading into the seawater is just too intense for you. Isn't that a shame? You see, some of you here have been remaining on the fringe of a Christian community. Perhaps it's this one, perhaps it's another one somewhere else. And you intentionally have chosen never to be known, always to do church in the shadows, because you think it allows you to be devoted to the Lord without being bonded to him. It allows you the freedom to do what you want Monday to Saturday, and because you tip your toe into the pool of church on Sunday, you think, actually, well, I'm fine. I'm not a spiritual orphan. I have some commitment to the Lord. A foot inside the camp, but not accountable to anyone. If that's you, that is not the picture of spiritual health that Exodus 21 verses 1 to 6 paint. For if you are a believer, if you are a believer, you have 
bonded yourself to God in a more radical way than this 3,300-year-old ritual foreshadows. And just as the ear of a slave was willingly pierced, when you committed to a relationship with Jesus, it changes everything. Everything. It means that if you know that you're in a relationship that doesn't honour the Lord, that is not the way that God describes how relationships should be in his word, but all of the voices around you are saying it's absolutely fine, if you are committed to Jesus, his voice is the only one you should be listening to, even if it's hard to obey. Or, Or for those of you who are involved in a practice at work that you know is not honouring to the way that the Lord has asked you to live. But all of the other voices around you are saying, look, you better do it because if you don't, your reputation is going to be utterly destroyed. The only voice you should be listening to is the Lord's. Because when you committed to following Jesus, whenever that was for you, it was as radical, it was as public, it was as stigmatizing, and it was as permanent as having your ear nailed to a doorpost. Now, perhaps this passage of such radical commitment actually reveals to you that your heart has grown a little bit cold to the Lord and perhaps you don't love him as you ought to. Well, the key to remember that God is worth trusting and it's worth remembering that he never asks us to do something that he hasn't done first for us. You see, 1,300 years after our Exodus passage, Jesus went before the judges because he chose to bond himself for us. He went before the judges and they condemned him. And the community of Israelites considered him a man of shame and sorrow as freedom was taken from him. And Jesus allowed his flesh to be pierced. And as he saw his blood run down the wood, not of a door, but of a cross, he knew that he was giving up his life so that he can serve those he loves, namely you. You see, the remarkable message of Exodus 24 verses 1 to 6 is that Jesus chose to be nailed to a piece of wood so that he could bind himself to you forever. That's where this passage ultimately points. And only when we see our king do that for us first, it leads us to willingly pledge our lives to him second. Let me finish by by saying this. I wonder if you've heard the story of Genesius of Rome. He was a um, he was a uh, playwright and an actor during the time of Diocletian. He wasn't a Christian, and he heard that Diocletian was coming to town, and he thought, "This is my chance." He was a famous playwright and writer. He thought, "This is my chance to totally make my career." He wanted to write a comedy about how ridiculous Christians were, how ridiculous they were. And so he wanted to do some research. He snuck into a Christian community and he sat with them when they gathered at their weekly um, service and he even mouthed along to the songs. He even learnt their doctrines and he could say the right things. He even got known by them and some of them even called him their friend. 
But he never had allegiance. He was never loyal. He was just going through the motions, just serving himself. And when the emperor came to town, he was ready. The play was set and he walked away from that Christian community, ready to make his fortune. He got onto the stage. Diocletian, the emperor, was there at the back and he performed his piece. It was hilarious. It took the mick out of Christians. It showed them to be surely ridiculous people who followed ridiculous instructions from a ridiculous old scripture. But in the midst of his performance, he actually came to faith. The Lord Jesus revealed to himself there and then when he was on stage, and he ended up saying to the emperor on stage, put your trust in Jesus. Isn't that remarkable? You see, the Lord has a great sense of humour, doesn't he? He was dragged away and they said, look, you can have your freedom back, but you need to renounce what you said. And he said, no, I can't. I can't. I belong to Jesus. They said, we will torture you and kill you unless you renounce. You can walk away to the life that you had. Just say it's not true. And he said, I can't. So they tortured him. And just as he was about to have his head chopped off, This is his final words. There is but one king I know. It is he that I love and worship. If I were to be killed a thousand times for my loyalty to him, I would still be his servant. Christ is on my lips. Christ is in my heart. No amount of suffering will take him from me. It's haunting words, isn't it? If I were to be killed a thousand times for loyalty to him, I would still be his servant. Every one of us here is currently facing a a micro-death. Something that if if we choose it, perhaps it will do well for us, but it will not be as God asked us to live. And if we turn away from it, Perhaps it will cost us something that's very dear to us and very precious to us and it will hurt. Every one of us faces a tiny death today, whatever that might be in your life. Will you turn to serve yourself? Or will you turn to serve Christ, your master? I wonder what you'll do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we we praise you and thank you that you are a good God. And we do ask, we do ask that you would help us see how trustworthy you are, how your love for us is more extravagant, remarkable, and to our world ridiculous than we could ever imagine. And yet it moves us, it moves us to commit ourselves, whatever the suffering, whatever the stigma, whatever the agony, to serve you, no matter what. Amen.